welcome back to the Coaches Rising podcast. And this is a podcast for you if you're a coach, if you care about doing deep transformational work, if you're actually just interested in this beautiful journey of being a human being and this path of unfolding. And so today, this is a, an important topic resilience. We're going to talk about resilience. And, you know, I say that because here in the Netherlands, we've just entered another full on lockdown over Christmas. And, you know, for good, for the reasons that is, it's, it's hard on people. And if you, if you look out in the world this year, with the crises we are facing, the reckoning we're living through in relationship to inequalities in the world, climate change, social crises, economic disparity, uh, our own individual journeys around our relationship to well-being and resilience and the adversities that life throws up. It can be hard. It can be hard being human. And it can be a pure joy too. But it can be hard. And so that's what we're going to explore today. We're going to explore this topic of resilience. I'm speaking with Linda Graham. I'll say a few more words about her in a moment, but we're going to explore Linda's, how she views what resilience is and her her new ideas around the importance of, of not just focusing on individual resilience, but on collective resilience. We'll talk about how can we support our clients to find resilience as coaches? How does Linda work with her clients to find what she calls glimmers of, of positive evolution? How does she support them in using the body, leveraging the body, brain, and emotions, and narrative to deepen in resilience? What is that path like? And she'll share some of the practices that she uses with her clients. So Linda is um, a, an author, a, a therapist, a coach. She's been a licensed marriage and family therapist since 1995. She specializes in helping people with, uh, reverse the impact of stress and trauma to manage anxiety, depression, loneliness, and shame. And she has two books out, which I really recommend. One book called Bouncing Back, Rewiring Your Brain for Maximum Resilience and Wellbeing. And another book, which is great, is called Resilience, Powerful Practices for Bouncing Back from Disappointment, Difficulty, and Even Disaster. That one's, I think, 130 different practices that you can use with yourself and also with, with clients. And, you know, she's training now thousands of therapists and coaches on how to bring resilience into their work and training people all around the world as well. So we're in good hands on this topic. And just to say that if you are wanting to join our community to stay in the loop about things we're creating that are not this podcast, you can head to coachesrising.com, put your name in the sign-up box there. You can also see the, the programs we offer and the other things there. And if you feel like sharing this podcast, I'd be grateful or leaving a review. I'd appreciate just getting the word out to as many coaches and transformational facilitators as possible. So that all being said, let's dive in. Here's the podcast with Linda Graham. Linda, it's um, really nice to be with you. I was just reflecting, well, we were reflecting. It's been, I think, 
I don't know, seven years approximately that we last spoke. And I remember coming off that call, just feeling like, ah, <laughs> Linda's awesome to speak to. And it was a rich conversation. So I'm, I'm glad to be coming back to you in what is interesting times. Well, Joel, thank you for having me. Times have changed mm-hmm. over those many years. And if anything, talking about resilience is as relevant and timely as ever, maybe more so. Yeah. Yeah, that's what we're going to go into today. I'd love to talk about your your book and your work you do around resilience. Maybe we could share some exercises that people could take away. Mm-hmm. And I think um, I'd just like to ask you a little bit about what we were just talking about. You shared some really beautiful things as we were checking in. The two things that stay with me, one is you know, you said like you had a, a, a kind of um, a scare that had you reflect on your life and what was important to you. And um, also you talked about the the state of the world, you know, and, and this, the COVID, the lockdown, the reckonings we're going through around climate change and, and inequality. So I wonder if you could share a little bit about you know, what you've, what's come out of this last period of time that you feel is important? Starting with the health scare, which happened second, it happened in March and April of 2021. Um, So I was facing the possibility of a serious diagnosis. Turned out that I'm fine. I probably was experiencing a lot of stress from the pandemic and it showed up in my body. At the same time, a friend of mine was diagnosed with a very aggressive, incurable form of lung cancer. So I felt like I was going through the sliding doors. You may remember that film from about 20 years ago, where one door opens and you continue your journey, and another door closes and the journey stops. And I felt like I got to continue my life, and my friend did not. But in that time when I was not knowing yet what my verdict was going to be, I found myself asking very, very seriously, if I'm not going to be on the planet a year from now, what is important? And it really gave me much more of a bird's eye view of not just my life personally or professionally, but the whole larger, more spiritual picture. And that was after when the pandemic happened and you know right away i'm scrambling to transition my clients to zoom transition all my teaching to online created an online course about resilience 2.0 just really trying to show up and meet the shifts the uncertainties the changing landscape and how do we be resilient in the face of that but over that year, as we had the pandemic and the lockdowns, and in this country, we had the murder of George Floyd and the whole Black Lives Matter movement. And I live in California, so we had wildfires that summer that were catastrophic, and we had our presidential elections. And then I fractured my shoulder in December, which is a personal adversity to deal with, but it also really made me appreciate the importance of resources, personal friends and family, community, external with healthcare. And then we had the January 6th insurrection here in Washington, D.C. So a year of would have been unimaginable catastrophes to deal with. And it really made me question, how do you move 
resilience beyond the personal self, beyond my own managing my nervous system and managing my emotions and managing my relationships within myself and to other people, managing my thoughts and my capacities to be aware and reflective and discerning. Besides myself, how do I think about resilience in terms of the larger community as the larger community is facing so much disaster? So it really had to expand my thinking um, beyond the personal. So I think that's the major thing I've been taking away is, yes, we talk about resilience as capacities to cope. The title of my book was Bouncing Back. The title of my friend Michaela House's book was Bouncing Forward. My friend Phyllis Kirsten talks about bouncing around, you know, that resilience can take these many different forms. As a result of the last almost two years now, I'm thinking about resilience as patient abiding, you know, just enduring changes that we can't necessarily control or predict. We do our best to show up. So I think, um, yeah, my perspective on resilience has gone beyond recovering the brain's capacities to make wise choices, you know, to um, how we respond with our heart as well as with our mind. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. There's a lot in what you just shared. Um, two things like what one is um, when you say enduring, I wonder if you could say more about that because, you know, in, in some ways that, that word has a perhaps a negative connotation, you know, like um, tolerating, enduring, but I, I get the sense when you speak about it that it means more than that to you, that there's something inherently invaluable inside of it. I'll, I'll save the other reflection for a moment. So in researching resilience, I came upon a journal article about resilience in Afghanistan. And the findings were really resilience to the Afghanis means hope not necessarily a better future right now, a better life right now. It means hope. And I was struck by the poignancy of that. If that's what we have to hang on to, to be resilient, then that's what we have. And I think that has influenced my thinking about patient enduring. And I use the word abiding, which to me sounds a little more choiceful and a little more positive. Because in the Buddhist tradition that I now practice in, we talk about abiding in kindness, in compassion, in equanimity. We talk about abiding in those states, no matter what is happening, no matter the level of personal or collective misery, um, abiding in those qualities of consciousness, beingness, sacredness, abiding in those qualities that really can carry us through uh, the most horrible disasters. You know, the, the title of my book, um, Resilience, is Powerful Practices for Bouncing Back from Disappointment, Difficulty, and Even Disaster. I really try to teach about capacities of resilience that can cover the whole spectrum, you know, disappointment um, that they don't have your favorite pasta at your local grocery store to disasters of people losing their homes 
and losing their lives, people losing hope. So how does resilience cover that whole spectrum? And that's really what I've been trying to focus on. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Because, um, you know, there's people like Margaret Wheatley. I don't know if you know her work, mm-hmm. but, you know, yeah. who's now talking about, I, I can't remember the title of her recent article, but it's something like, we've got to kill hope, you know? And um, she's talking now about the that there's we're in some kind of civilizational collapse and actually it's about and I'm I, I want to be careful I'm I'm paraphrasing her work and I want to I might rip, misrepresent it in certain ways but from what I understand it's it's a it's um she's advocating that we need to kind of kill hope and actually come together in islands of sanity of collectives of people that can um find resilience as we move through what could be a very devastating time and I just I'm curious what that brings up for you. Well, the first thing it brings up for me, so I mentioned that I was going through a health scare at the same time that a friend of mine got a very uh, fatal cancer diagnosis. So my friend is Terry Patton. And as he was going through his end of life journey, he created a whole video series called Brightening Every Darkness personal and collect facing personal and collective mortality. So he's looking at climate change. He's looking at the collapse of our civilization. He's looking at the possibilities of new wisdom and new hope emerging as he is saying yes to every moment of his journey. Yes to every moment of what he is learning about living and dying and resilience and resourcing. He gave his last broadcast from his hospital bed. And so Terry embodied saying yes to life in the face of life disappearing or changing form. And there was such um, joy. And I think there is something about hope, joy, love, so central to our resilience. It is persevering. It is grit and determination. It is finding the lessons in the catastrophes. It is post-traumatic growth. But part of that post-traumatic growth, the resilience mindset really is the growth mindset. It's choosing to see adversity as an opportunity for learning and growth. And when you have that mindset, that mindset changes everything to see the possibilities of learning, of caring, of serving, of being the light in the darkness. So I've really moved much more into that. I try personally to move much more into that growth mindset. And so this this really, true story, this happened. When I fell and fractured my shoulder, I've um, had a gratitude practice for a long time, many, many years. I've practiced gratitude a lot. And on the way down, as I knew I was going to hit the cement, I said, oh, thank goodness it's my left shoulder because I'm right-handed. I knew I could still function. The gratitude practice showed up in that split second as I was headed for catastrophe. And it showed up all the way to the ER. It showed up all the way through my many weeks in a sling. Um, So we practice these positive, um, compassionate, caring practices to hold us when things go dark, 
to still be the light when things go dark. And honestly, if we're talking about the collapse of civilization, part of my being woke during the pandemic, during Black Lives Matter, was our civilization has crushed a lot of other people for a long time. And waking up to the exploitation of people around the world in the name of capitalism or democracy or civilization. And so trying to open my own heart and my own mind to the suffering that I've been complicit, if not causing, at least benefiting from. And so how do I be resilient carrying forward faith and hope and compassion in the face of that? That's been a big internal wrestling match of how do I still be the light in the darkness as I become more aware of the darkness. Mm. The, the mindset thing I want to ask you about later, but I want to bring in that second reflection, which is about the collective um, side of resilience that you spoke to. And I think there's something interesting in that for me where there's, with any kind of um, work we do, the the um, chance that we appropriate it for our own self, you know, and, and me being more resilient, I'm more powerful, more effective, I get ahead in life. Now, I don't want to, I think there's something, of course, important in looking after oneself and doing the work for oneself. But it seems like one of the things we're facing is our, you know, perhaps our hyper individuality, and that there's maybe in the shift we're going through a um, an emphasis on relationship with one another on our collective resilience, you know, that, hey, um, if you're resilient, then I'm more resilient, you know, like, if you have more, then I I have more too, you know, that that mindset shift. And I, so I actually, I like what I hear you saying about that. So it speaks into something for me. So um, interesting that you use the phrase hyper individuality, which I think we're all trying to wake up to. Um, I went through my own little crisis because I work with individual clients. You know, when I teach workshops, I'm teaching people practices that they can use individually or sharing their reflections with other people, but it is very much focused on strengthening the capacities of resilience within so that we can navigate and engage the world more skillfully and have more thriving, cause less harm. One of the things that has happened with the waking up through Black Lives Matter and climate change and other big issues like that is that Hyper-individuality is somewhat a privilege of white, middle-class, educated Americans or Europeans. Not everybody in the world has that. And most people in the world have relied far more on community, far more on family than we do or than we even know how to. And resilience is based in community survival and tribe and clan survival. And so I think we have a lot to learn from people who have always had to turn to kith and kin for their support, 
for their wisdom, for their light, for their survival. So that's happening more and more. Um, and yes, even the climate change, which expands our perspective about resilience to the planet itself, and how as stewards of this planet do we make sure that our very home survives and people on this home survive. And so I'm gonna plug something here that's been very helpful to me lately. Um, it's a new website called Reasons to be Cheerful. And that sounds like positive psychology at first, but it's really investigative journalism all over the world looking for people in community to sustain community, to sustain the planet, to rebuild their cities, to um, use technology in ways that are beneficial to all of us. And so it's inspiring that people find the courage, they find the hope, they have the faith, and they put their effort, they put their energy, they put their dollars toward collective resilience. And it's just really been my friend Michaela Haas, who wrote Bouncing Forward, now writes some of those stories. And it's how do we continue to know where we are clearly and bounce back individually, bounce forward collectively. And so resilience takes on more life and meaning in that way. It's larger than the hyper individual. Mm. Yeah, the the um, it's so important, the... the the like we were talking about the individual and the collective, and I want to come to the individual, and I I I, I want to make sure I I also totally believe I, I I think it's so important we do the work ourselves. I mean, by the way, isn't it perhaps the the people who've had to rely on community to find resilience? That's that's a more fulfilling way, anyway. Perhaps you know, like uh, you know, maybe that's where we went wrong a little bit in the in the Western culture. You know, I, I just I just came out of a week-long silent meditation retreat at Spirit Rock Meditation Center. And the focus was loving kindness and being able to keep the heart open to ourselves, but also to just layers and layers and layers of people, including difficult people. Um, and there was also a lot of Qigong in that retreat, so embodied movement, you know, to help move the energy. And one of the phrases that one of the teachers used was, what we all are so hungry for is to know, I am loved, I belong, I am worthy. That's a lot of the core of resilience. To know that I'm loved, I belong, I am worthy. And a lot of the work that we do as coaches or as therapists is to help people come to that lived experience <laughs> that I'm loved, I belong, I'm worthy. So the what I teach in my books and in my workshops, that the basis of resilience is the secure base of resilience comes from secure attachment. It comes from knowing we are held, cared about, loved, seen, validated, that we are important. And if that happens early on in our early family experiences, that creates the inner secure base of resilience, of safety and trust, where we're able to take risks and navigate the world and then come back to that secure base. And that secure base kindles 
the maturation of the brain. It kindles the maturation of the higher brain, everything that we use for resilience, everything that we use to manage our nervous system, to manage our emotions, to attune to other people and have empathy, to have a sense of continuity of self, to have response flexibility, which is the core of resilience, to have a sense of morality, which is our common humanity. And so that secure attachment is the basis of everything that we use for relating to other people, relating to life and for our resilience. When that doesn't happen early on, then we need to be able to know how to recover our resilience. And very, very often that's in connection with people who see us and who believe in us. That's the primary role of coaches and therapists to see the authentic self, the true self of the client that's trying to emerge, trying to find its way home again, and to see it, to help the client see it, to help the client believe in it and trust it and then live from it. So yes, attachment, connection, compassionate, conscious connection is the source of our resilience and recovering our resilience. And so um, we learn resilience from role models. We do. Um, we learn resilience from seeing other people who are resilient. But mostly we learn resilience by being seen by other people as resilient. That's mm. how we come to believe in our resilience. Yeah. That's beautiful. Well, actually, that, that asks the question for me of, you know, the world we're in, we've been talking about it, all these different disruptors of our resilience and that there are, you know, everybody's feeling knocked out in some way, perhaps, or, you know, um, out of their window of tolerance. And so I, I feel it's really important for coaches to to know about how can we support our clients to find, develop resilience. And so I, I hear you in a way speaking about Maybe there's two vectors here. One is like, how can we help our clients find that s secure sense of attachment, repair their attachment? And can coaches play a role in that? Because, you know, people might say traditionally that's been the role of therapy. Um, and so there's that vector. But there's also how can we support clients in, in, in the immediate side of like learning to change their state moment to moment in order to shift from a state of, reactivity into a, a state of more resilience and how that compounds over time so maybe like the first part you know like do you think coaches can play a role in helping our clients develop that sense of secure attachment and and how might we do that anyway yeah um i'm going to answer that in two ways two parts once i had the experience of giving a keynote in a workshop in Jerusalem for a group that worked with domestic violence and sexual abuse in the Orthodox religious community. So it was the heaviest training I've ever done. And I happened to be in Jerusalem three weeks after terrorist attacks. So people were still pretty nervous. I was teaching about compassion and self-compassion and the role of self-compassion in calming their nervous system and allowing us to respond well. And after a day of training in self-compassion, someone came up to me and she said, you know, all of that is very useful. It's very helpful. But what was really helpful was you were calm. 
just the embodiment and transmission of calm could help them come back to calm themselves. And then that segues into my friend, Deb Dana, who's now translating polyvagal theory into therapy. Her new book just came out, Anchored. And Deb talks about working with clients, with people, in terms of safe. And S means stories are our narrative. And A means actions are our behaviors. And F means feelings. And E means embodied somatic experience. And she begins with the nervous system, that the nervous system is underneath our feelings and our actions and our stories. And so to help people feel safe and calm in their nervous system is the first step. And we may take that for granted, actually, as coaches or as therapists, because if we've done our work and if we have a sense of secure base of resilience, and if we can connect with a client in a way that cares and is attuned and is really paying attention so that the client can feel our paying attention to them, then we're helping them regulate their nervous system. And it's basically anxiety too revved up, depression too shut down, but we're helping them regulate their nervous system and come back into, you already used the word window of tolerance, this state of calm and relaxed, but engaged and alert, where we can move from the positive experiences of our nervous system. And that's what allows us, so my book Resilience is organized this way. Somatic intelligence first, how we work with the wisdom of the body to uncover and strengthen our resilience. And then the emotional intelligence of how we manage our disruptive emotions, because they're all signals to pay attention. Something important is happening here, pay attention. But then also cultivating the positive emotions because they shift the functioning of the brain. So we cultivate gratitude, compassion, kindness, serenity, joy, those are some that have been researched. We cultivate those emotions not just to feel better, but literally to shift the functioning of the brain from contraction and reactivity and negativity to more openness, more receptivity, to more optimism. And I love saying this because it's true in the research that cultivating these positive emotions, the direct measurable cause and effect outcome is resilience. Mm. So that's powerful when we teach our clients to practice gratitude or self-compassion or joy. We're actually very much rebuilding their resilience. And then I look at the relational intelligence within ourselves. How do we relate to ourselves? (laughs) Do I believe I'm loved, I belong, and I'm worthy? How do we relate to ourselves? And very often, you know, the biggest derailer of our Resilience is our inner critic and a sense of shaming, blaming ourselves. So working to change that relationship, you know, the inner critic becomes an inner ally. And then our relationship with other people. And actually, do we have safe, conscious, compassionate connection, resonant connection with other people where they are who they are as a person? And I am who I am as a person. We're not confused in the boundaries. We're not enmeshed, we're not cut off. We're just in this zone of where we can relate to each other and support each other as people. And that, that of course, is the basis of our resilience. And then the, the, the last is our reflective intelligence, our mindfulness, our awareness. Can we see our patterns? Can we see that we have choices? 
Can we discern our options? And that's where the growth mindset comes in, is a, a framework, a paradigm of knowing we always have options, even if the option is abiding, but we always have options. And so that's how we, we, we build our resilience from the bottom up and the inside out. And that's what coaches do, what therapists do from the very first moment of an encounter that begins as soon as there's connection. Yeah. Um, so if we take all those different domains you mentioned, like somatics and emotions, um, would there be a, a kind of natural order, say a client, you know, a coach was with a client and they were feeling, I don't know, like um, a lack of resilience triggered, uh, contracted in some way. What would be the process you would recommend that someone go through? Of course, you said in a sense like safety. So, of course, it sounds like there needs to be a safe container and that the coach is resourced and in a in a grounded place and that, that immediately might begin to create a kind of resonance with the client. But I'm wondering like what the process might be there because, you know, for example, you brought in emotions and like, you know, of course there's the danger that people then layer over a, a positive feeling because they actually um, want to get away from feeling something inside of their body and therefore, you know, so, so, you know, but actually might be needed that they become aware of what's in their body, bring compassion. And then there's a shift that can take place that allows a positive emotion to sink in, in a different way. So I don't want to answer the question, but what do you think about that? Yeah. We got five questions in that question. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I would start with when coach therapist is resourced have their own secure base of resilience. And we're working on that all the time, but grounded in that moment with the client, no matter what is happening in our life, grounded in that moment with the client present and attuned to them, there's a transmission already energetically. The client can begin to feel connected, safe, held, doesn't even have to be talked about. Sometimes it helps to talk about it. How are you feeling just sitting here with me? And all kinds of things can come up that can be worked with. I One of the first things I do all the time now is to normalize people's strategies for protecting themselves. We want to be safe. We need to be safe for anything else to happen. And people have developed strategies over a lifetime to feel safe. And some of them are adaptive and some of them are maladaptive. Some of them work very well, but at a cost. And so if there's a strategy of, you know, flight and delight, <laughs> spiritual bypass, feeling a positive emotion to evo avoid negative emotions or sensations in the body, I really connect with where the client is, validate what they're doing. It's brilliant. It's how you survived. It's how you got this far. We have 20 other tools in the toolbox, but let's understand that this one is absolutely important. And this may apply more in the therapy work I do, but, but human beings have always dissociated, especially in these times people are dissociating. It's just too hard to be present. So they're off in a dream world. And I validate how powerful 
dissociation is because it's one of the most powerful protective strategies we have. We don't feel pain when we're in a dissociated state. And so I validate how normal that is, how human that is. There are other ways that we can engage with life that might be more engaging. What I often do, um, my friend Deb talks about glimmers, and I will listen to any glimmer. Clients come in, they're complaining, they're upset, they're discouraged. And if I hear a glimmer, you should have seen what my cat did the other day. (laughs) Or I just, I saw a rose in the garden. I catch the glimmer. It may be, you know, 5% of what they're experiencing, but I focus on it, amplify it, expand it, because that shifts the functioning of the brain. We still have all the rest of the stuff to deal with. Because how would you do that? Would it be like, well, and what, what was it like to see the rose? How did you feel? Or... Um, you know, I'm interested in your experience when you saw the rose. What was that like for you? What was happening inside of you when you saw the rose? So we're trying to get to their embodied experience of what happened inside of them when they saw the rose. And that may shift their nervous system or their feelings or their perception of themselves. Well, you know, I feel like a loser most of the day, but I noticed that rose. There's something good about me, you know. So I'm really trying to get their experience and to get to the positive and the resourced and the resilient of their experience mm. and make yeah. that visible to them. Right. It's making their resilience visible to them. Yeah. Even if it happened once in the last five days. And, and so... um because there are different forms of, um, you know, um, I, I guess in a way we might be in the realm of therapy here, but, you know, um, for example, some, someone, what would you see, what would you say there's any value in, they might, they might talk about this rose and, and this glimmer and that might begin to shift their state and then that may make them more open to, to other types of work. But would you also maybe try something like if they were feeling, you know, contracted, upset, you know, like bringing a certain level of mindful presence to that sense of contraction, you know, like what's it like to be in relationship to that honoring that they don't want to feel it, you know, maybe like not saying you have to feel it, but saying, Oh, notice that. So, so yeah. What about that approach as well? So, um, one of the first tools I teach my clients and this can be a resource for them for years and years is hand on the heart. And if there's an uncomfortable body sensation, if there's an uncomfortable emotion, if there's a a bad memory about a relationship that went sour, if there's a worry about the job meeting with the boss tomorrow, hand on the heart. And I'll talk about the science of this in a moment. Hand on the heart, feeling the warm touch of the hand on the heart, Breathing deeply into the heart center. Breathing in a sense of ease or goodness or peacefulness into the heart center. Remembering a moment, just one moment, one moment, when you felt safe and loved and cherished with another human being. Could be a partner or a friend. It could be a child. It could be a pet could be a spiritual figure, but you feel safe and loved and cherished. And you just let that feeling 
emerge and flow through your body. You hold it for 30 seconds. Now, hand on the heart is powerful enough to calm down a panic attack in less than a minute. I teach it to all my clients. What's happening is the warm touch of the hand on the heart already begins to communicate from the heart to the brain to release oxytocin, which is the hormone of safety and trust. So already that begins to happen in the brain. The deep breathing activates the parasympathetic, the calming branch of the nervous system. The breathing in a sense of ease and safety and goodness restores a coherent heart rate variability, which simply means the heart is more flexible in its response to stress. Then remembering a moment of feeling safe and loved and cherished. <laughs> I'm loved, I belong, I'm worthy. <laughs> Remembering that moment really activates the oxytocin. And oxytocin is the brain's hormone of safety and trust. It is the direct and immediate antidote to the stress hormone cortisol. So when people can activate that oxytocin, even for a few seconds, they shift their state, they shift their experience of themselves, and they learn that they can they learn that they can shift their state into a state that's more resilient. So I'm working directly with whatever the experience is, but I'm not saying change your belief <laughs> or even change your emotions, just change your relationship to yourself in relationship to that experience. And so it's a powerful tool. And there are many, many, many such tools. I'm just really paying attention to the client in the moment what might be the most useful. And, you know, truth be told, coaches, we work a lot with people's vision, their dreams, their goals, their hopes, and then uh, developing behaviors that will get them there. So it can be a very much a higher brain process. That is where we do that kind of dreaming, but planning and executing. But we have to have that higher brain held safely in a body and be able to manage the sensations, the reactivity of the body, the emotions, anything that would derail it um, so that it can do its function of response flexibility. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I think that's um, it behooves us to be able to um, work in this way to create that coherence and to be able to recognize when our clients are actually not ready to do that higher order of visioning because their the foundation is not there because they're feeling they're feeling a lack of resilience mm -hmm. in some way mm -hmm. so but also normalizing that for them just right. how hard it is to be a human being and how hard it is to navigate this world especially right now and so bringing a lot of compassion and care and attunement to their experience of being human and they want to change that. They have the resources and the capacities to change that, but starting where they are. And do you find then that the outcome of the work is that over time they become kind of in a way stronger because they've learned, you know, like you said, they can actually create that change. Like, wow, I can actually shift out of this. And 
in some way there's a plasticity taking place where where less and less knocks them out of their center and you know is is that happening um so here's what i aim for stronger is part of being human and resilient so is being able to tolerate vulnerability and weakness so i'm really going for authenticity and genuineness and from there, people can be strategic. They can make their decisions. They can make their plans. But when it comes from their true self, their authentic self, who they really are on the way to who they really want to be, that's where the power is. The power is in their authenticity. And so my being able to be with the client where they are no judgment, helps them be where they are, no judgment, and that opens them up to change. It opens them up, you know, a big part of the growth mindset is being able to use failure or a setback or a disappointment as a cue to grow. It's a cue to try something new, try something different. And so when we develop that capacity to see disappointment, failure as a cue. It's not the final statement. It's a cue to try something new or to try something different. Then that cultivates a new habit. It's a new habit to use that cue to find a way to grow. And that's really what I'm trying to get clients to be able to do. It's not so much the content of their particular dream or their particular plan. It's that energy of using any adversity as an opportunity, a challenge to grow. You know, you may have heard the phrase AFCO, another freaking growth opportunity. And to see everything as a growth opportunity, that's really what helps people be resilient. Mm. Yeah, that's lovely. Um, what I hear in what you said was like, there's a that paradoxical nature of change is that you're welcoming everything that the client brings, they can cultivate that attitude so that then there's an organic sense of growth that starts to take place. It's less dictated on by the the mind and what it wants to happen, but it's actually a result of, you know, this including everything that's here in a, in a certain state. And then then this this idea, I think this like post traumatic growth idea is is what I'm hearing you talk about. You know that um, there's an immense power in being able to. I had one recently, um, an adversity that knocked me for a few days, and then I felt something come online where it was like, okay, you know what I could do here is I could just collapse and you know, tune out on Netflix and feel sorry for myself. And actually I felt, I think I was in a certain level of shock um, that un didn't enable me to shift. But at some point I, I did enough practice that I sh shifted. And then I was like, okay, well, you know, I can't control what's already happened and I can't control others. But what I can control here is that I can face this and that it is growing me. And that certainly I will grow more and, and kind of feel more authentic mm -hmm. if I face it rather than retreating into, mm -hmm. you know, defensive patterns. 
And that, I think it speaks into what you're saying. So again, um, two parts to my answer here. The power of mindfulness practice over time and the sort of shortcut slogan is you notice it sooner and you clean it up faster. So we're going to go through wobbles and dumps throughout life and you notice it sooner and you clean it up faster. That's part of being resilient. And then I now teach what I call an ABC model doesn't translate always so well into other languages, but in English, ABC, which stands to be aware, allowing, and accepting, being with and befriending, open to whatever the experience is, and then compassion, care, and curiosity. So that's opening up again to a learning mindset, a growth mindset. And then often I will add the D and the E. D is discerning what the options are and E is engaging. So we use that pausing and being with and embracing and reflecting to be able to choose the next action, the next path, the next Thing we're going to do and that's the key to resilience every choice becomes wiser more on target more effective more skillful and we're building our capacity to do that and maybe actually this is a good time to ask the question we could have started the interview with is like what what is resilience to you then maybe <laughs> I, I hear you speaking to what it is and what you just mm -hmm. reflected so the definition of resilience has evolved over time in science as people began researching resilience. So the first original definition of resilience was from a psychologist at the University of Chicago, um, Salvador Amati. And he said, resilience is stress hardiness, being able to cope with stress. We've evolved since then, and I, I now say resilience is response flexibility. It's being able to change direction, change a pattern, change a habit, change a behavior. It's being able to do something different, something that's more workable and more skillful. Um, and so I also say that resilience is innate in every human being because it is innate in every human brain. We all have the capacity to be resilient. We need to know what it is and how to cultivate it, how to strengthen it, how to use it. And so all these tools of coaching or therapy or spiritual practice are practices to help us do that. But we all have the capacity to. And, you know, once a person knows that, then then they're just really going forward from there. Even if you fall backwards, Robert Brault says something like, you know, a pessimist thinks going backwards after going forward is a disaster, but an optimist sees it as a cha-cha, you know, that we, that we see these stumbles as cues to walk more directly, walk more uprightly, however we can. Mm -hmm. And what you just shared, I think, speaks to me why this topic is so important for coaches, because, you know, the, this idea of um, response. Can you say it again? Response, response flexibility? flexibility. Yeah. 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 
You mean, you know, that that's at the heart of not just, it's at the heart of being human, isn't it? The heart of yes. being a leader. We're, we're all coaching people who are feeling stresses in their lives, maybe stresses to grow, but, um, you know, stresses. And so how can we support them to be able mm-hmm. to be responsive in a flexible mm-hmm. way in the face of those stresses so that they, they thrive in their right. endeavors, they access their innate creativity right. their wisdom their compassion and so right. you know this is for me where you can maybe throw out this idea of therapy and coaching and you come to the core dynamic of being human and supporting one another to to right. to collaborate and thrive in our times if we go all the way back to darwin who said it is not the strongest of the species that survives nor the most intelligent it is the one most adaptive to change and that's what we're trying to teach with our resilience is being adaptive to change. And just to come back to an idea you shared about the glimmers, you know, um, mm-hmm. these through the, the example of the rose mm-hmm. that um, is, is that is that so that's counteracting our negativity bias in some way? You know, like what what's the is that is that because of plasticity that, you know, we can learn to. I'm thinking of Rick Hansen's work here too, where he, mm-hmm. he teaches about like kind of sinking into positive affect in order to mm-hmm. kind of strengthen our our expression of it, you know, the availability right. of it. I don't right. know if that's why you would work with those glimmers. Yes. So Rick did us all a great service talking about the negativity bias that is hardwired into the brain for our survival as individuals and as a species, that we focus on the negative because we have to, to survive. And the positive more often tends to be overlooked. So to cultivate the positive proactively, choicefully, is what will shift the functioning of the brain. And in Rick's teaching about taking the good, it's to notice or experience the good and to be able to feel it in an embodied way, which is why when I was talking about the experience of the rose, I was asking the client, what's your experience of being with the rose? What's the internal embodied experience? And so being able to take in the good in an embodied felt sense way, whether that's a a body sensation like a warm cup of coffee or an emotion like joy at seeing your best friend or, you know, relationally, you know, feeling kindness or compassion for someone, even our mindfulness. Oh, I just noticed that good for me. Taking in the good and expanding it, amplifying it, letting it sit there, letting it savor because, and I, I really appreciate what Rick teaches about this. If you do that for 30 seconds, and then if you do that six times a day, that's three minutes of practice, and you will create a permanent resource in your brain for resilience. Mm -hmm. So yes, we're harnessing the neuroplasticity of the brain to go in a more wholesome direction. And and I, I do teach what Richie Davidson, who runs the neuroscience lab at the Center for Investigating Healthy Minds, at the University of Wisconsin says that, you know, the brain changes all the time. That's the nature of the brain. That's more the rule than the exception. Our job is to learn how to harness 
that brain change, that neuroplasticity, and send it in a wise and wholesome direction. So any experience will change brain functioning. We try to proactively choose experiences that will be wholesome, that will be positive, that will be resilient, and rewire the brain in a good direction, which is why more and more these days when a client has an experience of a new insight, a new behavior, a new choice, I will say, you learned how to do that. And you're learning that you can learn. Because that's really the most important part. Mm. Learning that you can learn. Right, right. Yeah, that I think Rick wrote about that too. And I, I just remember something he, he said, which I thought was brilliant, which was that coaching often you know, we can coach people into insights or shifts, but then we fail because we don't have them sink into that shift, that positive shift. So we've done the good work, you know, there was a shift, there was an insight and there was a, there was a a somatic response to that, but then you don't actually have them just sink in and feel that like you described really beautifully Mm -hmm. for, for 30 seconds or so. Right. So that resilience is not just a cognitive process. It, it's more than that. It's a whole body, whole being process. And yes, to get the felt sense of that is where the power is. That's where the resourcing is. That's what we, what we can go back to again and again and again, is that felt sense of being resilient and trusting that. And so would you say that the outcome of the work you're doing with your clients is you're kind of like tuning them up to their phenomenological experience and their relationship to this response flexibility where, you know, I think you said this already, but they're able to spot in the moment, you know, when, when perhaps they've shifted out of that place and what they need in order to shift back, whether that's something in the emotional realm or the the embodied or the reframe or something like that. No, um, I think many clients come to coaching or they come to therapy because they have a glimmer that something else is possible, but they may not know exactly how to get there or trust themselves to get there. So I both work with the positive, what's pulling them on, and I work with the negative, what any, anything that's holding them back or blocking them or obscuring, obstructing. And so we work with both the forward mo- motion and whatever is holding people back and going back and forth in a rhythm of doing that. Yeah. Mm. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I like that you make that distinction. Um, may- maybe you would be open to sharing another practice um, with us right now. And even like how you might know when to, work with one of either of those that you just named the pulling back and the moving forward, but let, let, just to see where, you know, if there's a practice that, that you, that you use regularly with your clients. So um, the hand on the heart is the pulling forward. It's pulling into the feeling resourced and the ABC is being able to hold anything and be with anything and respond to it. Well, If I'm working with a negative, um, then I have my own way of creating a dialogue between the wiser self, the true self, the adult self, and parts. 
that may feel reluctant or scared or unsure about moving forward. And Tara Brock has really developed this into a whole program called the RAIN Meditation of recognizing something's happening, allowing it to be there, investigating, inquiring into the felt sense of it, and then nurturing. And so I will ask for the part of the client that is hesitant, scared, doesn't believe, what is that part? And and very often it's a shy part that has felt disappointed, feels a failure, it's not sure of itself. And so I will really try to me engage with that part, but also, I mean, I think in coaching, this is sometimes called working with the gremlins or whatever, but, or the saboteurs or whatever the language is, but I and the wiser self can engage with that part, allowing and accepting, befriending, having compassion. What do you need? What nurturing, what strength, what faith, what validation do you need to move forward? And it's working with that part inside that is hesitant or unsure or afraid or ashamed or whatever the emotion is. And by allowing that part to be there and have a voice and be included in the family or in the self that's moving forward, again, I'm loved, I belong, I'm worthy, then that part no longer has to obstruct if it feels safe, it feels held, it's part of the decision-making that it can go along with the plan. So that's, I really dive for that negative in a very warm, welcoming, open, compassionate, validating way. It's just part of being human. Mm. Yeah. That's really nice. And I'm thinking just to, to expand on that, you, you um, are you like allowing the part to speak you know like in internal family systems for example you know like the park would speak um and it's feeling that it's feeling that loving unconditional relationship and that's what's kind of allowing it to integrate or melt in some way yes the most important part aspect of this is for the part to feel listened to Mm -hmm. believed held in safety Mm. They have to feel that safety. That part is doing its own healing and feels safety then to join in the enterprise. So it isn't a lecture, you know, it isn't, oh, come on. It's really that part saying, okay, I get it. You care about me. You hear me. I can trust you. I'll come along now. It's a secure attachment between that part and the wiser self. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great. Um, just then, like we're as we move towards the end of our conversation, I wonder if there's anything we haven't named that you think is important to put on the table when it comes to this topic of supporting clients to become resilient. Um, I would go back, and one of the steps of post-traumatic post-traumatic growth is rewriting the narrative or coming up with a coherent narrative. And I think that's really, really important. We resource people. They can feel good inside. They can see a plan going forward. But to rewrite the narrative so that whatever has held them back before is part of the story, but it's not the whole story. 
So there's a protocol for doing that of this is what happened. <laughs> this is what happened. Here's the consequences. Um, here's how I coped at the time. Here were my resources at the time. Here's how I would cope now if I could do it over because I might have new resources now that I didn't have at the time. And then here's the lessons I learned, the gifts I found. It's the finding the silver lining. And then it's um, here's how I'm going forward. Here's what my goals and plans are now going forward. If people can do it, the final step is here what I, here's what I appreciate now about my life because of what happened, not just in spite of what happened, because of what happened. And that puts everything in a narrative that becomes the base for the next steps forward. So I think that rewriting, you know, I talked about Deb's model of stories, actions, feelings, and embodied um, body awareness. It's important to rewrite the stories and have a story about ourselves that will carry us going forward. If part of the story is I've learned that I can learn, then that helps us be resilient. So rewriting the story, I think is also important. Yeah. Mm. And that's really beautiful. Like it sounds like we're turning, we're, we're seeing things then not as obstacles in the way, but actually it is, that is the way. Like I, Thomas Hubel is someone I love talking about this where it's, right. Yeah, often coaching clients are like, oh, yeah, I want to get to that place, but this thing's in the way. You know, this if this thing wasn't there, so it's then they're holding it in a particular way, which mm-hmm. kind of reifies it and things get stuck. So this feels different. Well, also, probably like anything else, body sensation, emotion, that obstacle has a message. The inner critic, there's a grain of truth in the message. So what's the grain of truth in the obstacle? And being able to listen to that message respectfully, openly, that's how you're able to integrate it into going forward. And um, I, I just wonder if, as we close, if there would be anything you'd like to say to coaches listening in a way like, a, you know, we, we started off talking about your um, relationship to your work being a, light, a lighthouse in these mm-hmm. times. And I wondered... If there was just some some expression of that you wanted to offer to coaches now, like a, a call in any way, and I put you on the spot there, and uh, no, you know, no pressure. But you've, but. you've um, elevated me. I was thinking of a candle, and it's solstice. I've been lighting candles, so I I see myself as a candle, a light in the darkness. A lighthouse is pretty powerful to prevent the wrecks in the, in the storm, but. To be a light in the darkness, brightening every darkness, as my friend Terry said. Um, The Buddha taught that a candle never loses its flame by being shared. So when we're a candle, a light in the darkness, and we share that light, it never goes dark. The light continues, and we're helping the clients find the light in themselves and believe in the light in themselves. That's what fuels and informs their hopes and their dreams and their visions. So, um, yeah, I think just, you know, I have a lot of quotes in my books, and one of them from Annie Dillard is, how we live our days, of course, is how we live our lives. 
So being a light in this moment, in this day, is how I carry that forward into a life. Yeah. Mm, I can feel that right now as well. I feel that. Yeah. And I'm grateful, Linda. Yeah, I, I just want to offer my gratitude for you sharing your wisdom on this call today and I think for me, I just feel um, very inspired actually about the the role that we can play and the, the importance of resilience, you know, in our times. So um, you picked a good topic, actually. In a way, <laughs> it's like I'm like, damn, that's a that's a. <laughs> and I'm, I'm just wondering where we can find out more about your work and the offerings you have that people could okay. be interested in. Right, my website is Linda Graham Dash MFT for Marriage and Family Therapist. Dot net and there everything on my website except my resilience 2.0 course but everything else is free and easily downloadable so all the posts and the videos and the exercises and the articles and um a lot of resourcing on that website and leading to other websites as well so that's a good place for people to start mm, great and we'll link to your website on the uh, podcast okay. page and Things so people can find there, and many of the people you mentioned today will will link. Will will create um, just a little glossary of the names you mentioned. So, right. Um, thanks, Linda. Thank you, Joel. This is, you know, um, I hope I've become more wise and more compassionate as I've gone through this life. And when I have a conversation with you about this topic. Then I get to pull on whatever it is I've learned along the way. And it's a joy for me to discover that, you know, <laughs> to discover that, yeah, all this work has built a body of wisdom and compassion that can be a light for other people, for their wisdom and their compassion. And that's a joy to experience that. So mm. thank you. Thank you very much. Mm. Here we are. We're at the end of the podcast. Just a, a heads up again, if you're not on our mailing list and you want to stay in the loop about other things we create, then head to coachesrising.com. Put your name in the sign-up box there. You'll also find some of our other offerings, our online trainings for coaches there. And just want to end by wishing you well, and I'll see you again next time. Mm-hmm.